Welcome to Paychecks Thrive, a business podcast where you'll hear timely insights to help you navigate marketplace dynamics and propel your business forward. Here's your host, Gene Marks. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm here with Jocelyn Samuels, who is vice chair at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And for those of you guys listening and watching, I'm going to refer to it as the EEOC from now on. So I don't screw up saying Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, Jocelyn, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much, Gene, for having me. And I screw up on Equal Employment Opportunity Commission all the time. So EEOC works for me. I appreciate that very much. So, so Jocelyn, so your vice chair, so let's, let's start with that. First of all, if you can just give us a, just an explanation of what that means and, and how the EEOC is, you know, is organized. Absolutely. So the EEOC was created in 1964 by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it's the primary federal agency that enforces the employment discrimination laws of the United States. We are an independent agency, which means we're not a cabinet department. We are comprised of five commissioners, no more than three of whom can be members of a single political party. So the commissioners are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate for staggered terms of five years. I was initially confirmed in September of 2020 for a term that ended in July of 2021. I was lucky enough to be reconfirmed in July of 2021 for a term that lasts until July of 2026. So Jocelyn, um, the EEOC, it, you know, obviously it, it represents workers, you know, their interests and their rights. But, you know, I think that's also important for employers as well. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Why, why is what the EEOC does important for employers, particularly small employers, to know? Sure. No, thank you so much for that question. And maybe I can back up for a minute to describe a little bit more about the laws that the EEOC enforces and the tools that we have in order to be able to ensure compliance. So as I mentioned earlier, the EEOC enforces federal laws that bar employment discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, sex, which includes pregnancy and related medical conditions, sexual orientation and gender identity, disability, age, and genetic information. So that's a full panoply of protections that we enforce. And we have multiple tools that we use in order to promote compliance. I think the employment discrimination laws themselves uh, make clear that voluntary compliance is the preferred means of ensuring that employers run non-discriminatory workplaces. And so we have a host of tools that we use to assist employers at the front end to ensure that they understand their responsibilities and can avoid getting challenged at the back end after problems have arisen. 
So for example, we have lots of material on our website that provides information about the standards of the law and how to comply with them. We do educational presentations across our 53 different offices and employers can participate in many of our public events that provide additional information about how to comply with the law. We investigate charges of discrimination that are filed with us, and we have the authority to try to settle those where we find that discrimination has occurred and think that we can reach an amicable resolution between the parties. We issue regulations and guidance that provide information about how we interpret the standards of the law. And then ultimately, we have the authority to bring lawsuits to hold employers accountable for discrimination in cases where we found discrimination but cannot reach a voluntary resolution of the claims. But again, we much prefer to work with employers at the front end than to challenge them at the back end. I'll note a couple of things. We do work to vindicate the rights of employees who have been subject to discrimination. But non-discriminatory, fair, and inclusive workforces are good for everyone, not just the workers, but the businesses as well. They help to ensure that workers will want to come to work for an entity and will stay once they've been hired. They improve morale. They improve a business's bottom line. And they ensure compliance with the law and adherence to goals that I am absolutely confident employees and employers share, which is to eliminate arbitrary and artificial barriers to ensuring that workers can be hired and can perform in accordance with their own potential and not based on their race, their national origin, their sex, or any other prohibited criterion. I'll also note that we follow facts where they lead. So when we get complaints of discrimination, we investigate them, we make determinations about whether discrimination has occurred, and if we find that it has, we seek remedies on behalf of the worker. But if we find no reason to think that discrimination has occurred, we issue letters closing the case and informing the individual that they have the option to go to court, but we seek no further relief in those cases. What are some of the hot buttons then this year, Jocelyn, you know, as an, you know that, that you would like to make employers aware of that they need to be paying special attention to? So I, the first thing that I'd make your listeners aware of is that we do have a small business toolkit on our website, and I encourage uh, small businesses to check it out because it is a suite of materials that is intended to help small businesses that don't necessarily have large internal HR departments or general counsels who are providing them daily advice on the law to understand their responsibility under the employment discrimination laws. 
if you wouldn't mind me interrupt you, um, yeah, yeah. one of the things that I find interesting about the EEOC is that the, the you do not discriminate between big and small businesses. Sometimes small businesses are exempted from certain regulations or, or laws, but um, I think even the smallest of businesses could you know, still have complaints filed against them and the EEOC could still get involved, correct? Actually, the laws uh, exempt, uh, in the case of race, national origin, uh, color, sex, religion, disability, and genetic information, employers with fewer than 15 employees are exempted. In the case of age discrimination, employers with fewer than 20 employees are exempt. But small businesses should be aware that some state laws cover smaller employers. So even if they are exempt under federal law, they may have responsibilities depending on their location. That's great. And, you know, I'm glad you you qualified that for me. That was really important. And also, you know, like you said earlier, it, it's good business practices to be able to run your business, um, you know, where, where there is no you know, you know, complaints of discrimination or harassment. You're looking to hire new employees and retain talent. And um, so even following the small business toolkit that you make available, regardless of the size of your business, um, it's important to you um, because that's you know, that's how a good business is run. Um, so let's let's carry on. So the the small business toolkit is available for small businesses to to to, to learn from, um, which yeah. is great. Um, but let's get back to some of those hot issues. So what well, I mean, it's fun. It, things change, yeah. you know, within you know, you know, over periods of time. So what are you seeing now that, or what are you you know, paying special attention to um, at the commission that you know you think that my listeners would want to know about? For sure. And, you know, some of these things are uh, bread and butter that have been part of the law for the decades that it's been in effect. But they are obligations that small businesses need to pay attention to. Title VII and the other employment discrimination laws that we enforce apply across the spectrum of employment activities from recruitment to apprenticeship programs, to hiring, to promotion, to termination, to terms and conditions of employment, which include benefits and wages and vacation leave and treatment on the job. And so one of the areas where we continue to see significant activity and lots of claims is with regard to harassment. And harassment can take place on a host of bases. So I think, you know, people are most familiar with concepts of sexual harassment, but it also, the same standards apply when you're evaluating harassment based on race or national origin or the fact that someone has a disability or any other prohibited criterion. What small businesses need to be aware is that they should protect themselves by ensuring that they have anti-harassment policies in place that make clear that harassing conduct on a prohibited basis is not permissible in the workforce and provide clear means for employees to complain and notify management if they feel that they have been subject to harassment in the workplace. 
we have a lengthy document explaining the standards of harassment on our website. We hope to be updating that in the near-term future because it is sadly a growth industry in the employment discrimination field. Another area where businesses really need to be conscious of their responsibilities is with regard to retaliation. So when someone makes a complaint that they have been subject to discrimination, whatever the basis, race, age, disability, genetic information, etc., even if that complaint is unfounded, an employer will get itself into trouble if it penalizes the worker for having raised the complaint in the first place. So that means even though it may be natural for employers and us as individuals to react negatively when we feel that we've been falsely accused, if you take action against an employee for having objected to a practice that the employee thinks is discriminatory or for having participated in an EEOC proceeding, that will be an independent violation of the employment discrimination laws and one that can create liability even if there is no basis for the underlying claim of discrimination. So those are two long-standing prohibitions in the law that employers really need to be conscious of because they form a significant basis for the complaints that we receive. There are also some newer issues that employers are confronting in the 21st century workplace that didn't exist back in the 1960s when these laws started being uh, passed and then enforced. So, for example, the use of artificial intelligence or AI. We have an initiative that is focused on helping employers who want to take advantage of the benefits of technology to do so in ways that will not succumb to pitfalls of the use of technology. So we all know that technology can improve efficiency and speed and enable employers to deal with thousands of applicants in ways that will consume less time than going through paper resumes. And no one disputes that technology can add real benefits, but it can also create real problems under the employment discrimination laws to the extent that either the form of the technology or the substance of the tests that employers are using screen people out on the basis of race, national origin, sex, disability, or any other prohibited basis. So if, for example, you have an automated system that asks people about the date of their graduation from college or their date of birth, that technology may automatically exclude people on the basis of age in a way that can get you into trouble under the employment discrimination laws. Similarly, if you use an algorithm 
that sifts through hundreds of thousands of bits of data and identifies people who are most likely to be top performers as those who have graduated from women's colleges, your formula is going to screen out men. And so it can get you into trouble under the employment discrimination laws. We hope to put out various documents that identify best practices for harnessing the benefits and avoiding the pitfalls of this technology. And we've started with a document that provides technical assistance on ensuring that the technology you use doesn't screen out people with disabilities. That's available on our website, and I encourage you to check that out as well. Jocelyn, um, you know, it's funny you, you bring this topic up. I was just reading about this, um, that New York State actually is, is coming out with some rules about bias in the interviewing process and using AI technology in that. And um, I don't, I don't want to throw anything at you from left field, so if you're, you're not comfortable answering this question, just tell me. But there's, there, there's a bunch of new applications coming out, a lot of AI-based software um, made by companies that are, are trying to help employers with the uh, with the hiring process, and a lot of big companies are are making use of this. And they go to the they're kind of creepy, like they you know they the employees get interviewed on video, and it's like analyzing their facial expressions and their you know their, their voice intonations, and not only how they're answering the question, but just how they're behaving, um, and gives those reports. Now, um, those applications, one of the reasons why they're sold is. Uh, their position to say they, they reduce the amount of bias in the hiring process. And, you know, you were just saying that you have to be careful with some of these AI applications because they can introduce bias into the process. So I was just curious of what your, what your thoughts are on some of those applications that are coming out. You must have bumped into some of them. Um, is that something you would you think is what will, you would recommend to a business to use or would you tell them right now you might want to avoid them for the near and the near future. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for the question. And, you know, it's kind of the wild west out there because there are new apps and tools being invented every day. And the laws, uh, you know, typically we deal with lawyers and HR people, not with technology vendors. And so it's, you know, the people who are creating these things may not be aware of the ways in which the laws may constrain their use. I'll say a couple of things. The first thing is, I do think technology can be helpful in limiting the possibility of biases creeping in. So for example, if you have uh, a technological tool that uh, hides an applicant's name until after an employer makes a determination about whether they're qualified for the job, that can help to reduce the bias that might creep in even unconsciously if people see names that are traditionally male or traditionally female or represent a different national origin or something like that. Um, that said, again, as you noted, Bias can creep in in unintended ways. And the cautionary thing that I would say to your audience is, as a general matter, employers are on the hook for using discriminatory tools, 
even if those tools were developed by a third-party vendor and purchased by the employer. And so it really behooves employers who are thinking about purchasing or investing in development of some of these new tools to work very closely with the vendor to understand the way in which the vendor is evaluating its tool for potential bias, the criteria that go into whatever the output is that the tool is supposed to predict or produce. It's um, really important for employers to do due diligence when they are thinking about investing. And one of the things that uh, your listeners should check into is what I am uh, pretty sure will be available on our YouTube channel by the time this interview is broadcast, which is a hearing that we will be holding in the middle of September that goes to the ways that AI tools can be used to reduce and eliminate employment barriers, but at the same time to be wary of the ways that they can result in disproportionate exclusion as well. Great advice. And I guess my takeaway is you have to be careful of what you're using. And uh, in the end, like you said, the liability is always going to be on the business owner, on the business themselves. And I, you and I am sure can bet uh, that the software companies themselves have all their disclaimers about whatever their technology or processes they use. So it's even more important for businesses to really be careful. All right, let me, I'm gonna switch a little bit and ask you about reporting issues. So the EEOC has made it a lot easier for employees to report directly to the EEOC if they are encountering any type of an issue, harassment, discrimination, you know, you know, not having reasonable accommodation. Um, so I, I, can you talk a little bit about that? And because I think, I think my audience, I think people running a business need to need to know that um, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's not a difficult process for an employee to report them if they feel that something wrong is going on. So can you speak to what the EEOC offers? Sure. Uh, you know, part of the silver lining of the pandemic to the extent that there was any silver lining to it, is that we were uh, forced to uh, put more effort into developing online access for our stakeholders to access our resources. And so we now have a portal through which individuals can manifest their intent to file a claim, schedule intake interviews with our investigators, and ultimately file a complaint of discrimination. I don't want the ease with which employees can do that to scare employers into thinking that uh, they are more at risk. In fact, the number of charges that we've been receiving has been declining over time, although that may have been the result of the pandemic and people leaving the workforce. And so it may be that those trends will be reversed in, in the months to come. But also when we get a complaint of discrimination, we are obligated under the law 
to notify an employer about those complaints and to give the employer an opportunity to file what we call a position statement, which responds to those inquiries or those complaints. We evaluate the position statement and the complaint that's been filed. We make an assessment about what kind of investigation and how extensive an analysis we need to do. And then we take the steps that are necessary, whether it's requesting documents from the employer, interviewing witnesses, or potentially closing a complaint because we realize that it's asserting discrimination on a basis that we don't cover, for example. Um, But the filing of the complaint is the first step in the investigative process, which then involves contact with the employer and opportunities starting at the very beginning to mediate or engage in alternative dispute resolution for those kinds of complaints where the employee and the employer have a disagreement, but it's one where they'd really like to get to resolution expeditiously. Yeah, that's good. I, you know, you, you raise that, you know, the issue about employers feeling they're more at risk. And I hear that from my clients, you know, they, they feel that they are more at risk that employees can just do that. So it's good to hear the steps that you're taking to make sure that that risk is somewhat mitigated. And you encourage employers and employees to work out those issues, you know, themselves rather than taking up taxpayer dollars to get those, you know, issues resolved. I could just interrupt for one second, Jean, so sorry. We do have a very robust alternative dispute resolution program where we facilitate the mediation and the conversations. So we don't cast the employee and the employer out into the wilderness and say, you guys just work this out. We have trained professionals who can facilitate the conversations in ways that will most likely lead to resolution. I'd also add just as, as a um, Side note, employers do need to keep abreast of the law because while the number of charges may have declined over the course of the pandemic, the bases for potential discrimination get enhanced over time. So just two years ago, for example, the Supreme Court made absolutely clear that employers are barred from discriminating based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That was a position the EEOC had taken a decade earlier, but the Supreme Court has made the law of the land. And so employers who have not focused on the fact that, okay, it's not just sex discrimination, it's also discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity that you have to watch out for, would do well to evaluate their anti-discrimination policies and their procedures to make sure they get out in front of any problems. You know, you brought up an interesting point that um, that I, I, I actually have to get your thoughts on as well. And you were talking about how the number of cases had actually gone down during the pandemic, um, which is, and I don't know if you guys talk about this internally or not, but you know, what are your thoughts on the impact? There's been such an enormous change in the workplace um, with so many more people working from home. 
and working remotely than ever before. And have you, have you, I'm just interested in your thoughts. Do you think that those changes could actually um, help avoid um, having some of the issues that we've seen before with discrimination or harassment in particular, you know, like, you know, the less that people are together in the office, maybe the lower the chances that somebody's going to say or do the wrong thing, you know, what, you know, as opposed to just being remote. Yeah. My question is, um, what impact do you think this, the changing work from home workplace, do you think that will have on, on what the EEOC does and the types of cases that you're going to say? And this is just your, your personal thoughts. I don't know how it's going to affect the number of complaints. Um, but I, I think it could affect the kinds of complaints we get. I, so, for example, as people are in the workforce less, there may be fewer problems with sexual assaults or physical overtures of a sexual nature because people are just not together. On the other hand, employers have to guard against online harassment as well. And if employees on Zoom calls or email systems are using epithets or inappropriate language or sharing inappropriate videos or suggestive comments, that's as much of a problem as if it had occurred in the physical workplace. The other thing that I would say is um, that I do think the pandemic will have an impact on thinking through what constitutes reasonable accommodation. And your audience probably knows that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, one of the obligations for people with disabilities is that employers consider the possibility of what's called reasonable accommodation to their disability to enable them to perform the essential functions of the job and to enjoy equal terms and conditions in the workplace. And so one of the things that employers used to say, uh, I think quite frequently, was that telework couldn't be a reasonable accommodation because all of their jobs had to be done in person. I think what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is really remarkable ingenuity in moving a lot of business functions that we used to think had to be done in person to an online approach. And I think that that realization is something that employers are going to have to keep in mind as they have people with disabilities, people who are immunocompromised, for example, or have other barriers that make coming into the workplace difficult as a result of their disability, employers are going to have to think about whether remote work is a reasonable accommodation for people who can do the job but simply can't, for reasons of disability, come into the office on the schedule that the employer expects under typical circumstances. So I do, but there also may be, of course, need for accommodations related to technology 
that people use for remote work. So if a workplace encourages its workers to work from home, employers ought to be sure that employees with vision impairments or hearing impairments or other mobility issues that prevent them from using technological tools without an accommodation are accommodated. Now, the employer's obligation is to provide accommodation up to the level of what's called undue hardship, which means in the disability context, significant difficulty or expense. But there are lots of accommodations that can be provided well before an employer encounters undue hardship, and the law obligates employers to consider that or to implement those that are necessary under the standards. Jocelyn, I can assure you that the vast, vast majority of my clients and my audience are not Michael Scott from The Office, which makes me laugh when I think that every episode he's probably violating at least 10 of the rules of the EEOC. Uh, So you can take comfort in that. Um, But before I let you go, do you have any final words for for this audience, uh, you know, as to what they should be considering and and thoughts about the EEOC that they, they should just be aware of? Absolutely. And thank you again for this opportunity to talk with you and and with your audience. Um, You know, when I give speeches, I often say, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. And everybody laughs. And I say, why are you laughing? Because I truly mean it. It is really a core part of our mission to provide the support and information that employers need in order to comply with their responsibilities under the law. I really do encourage your audience to check out our website and to be in touch with any of our 53 offices across the country to solicit information about how they can ensure that they are complying with the legal requirements. Because I have real confidence that the vast majority of employers want to do the right thing. And in fact, that the right thing under the law is the right thing for their businesses. And so we really want to do what we can to facilitate that voluntary compliance and to move toward the goals of the law that I know we all share of creating true equality of opportunity in the workplace. So I look forward to partnering with your listeners and working together to achieve the goals of the law today, tomorrow, and on into the future. And, you know, one thing I should have said at the outset, and I will make very clear now, is I am here today speaking just for myself. Uh, I do not accept where the commission has established policy. I'm not speaking either for the commission as a whole or for any other commissioner. Jocelyn Samuels is a vice chair at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Jocelyn, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I uh, appreciate you coming on. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for the invitation. Do you have a topic or a guest that you would like to hear on Thrive? Please let us know. 
visit payx.me forward slash thrive topics and send us your ideas or matters of interest. Also, if your business is looking to simplify your HR, payroll, benefits, or insurance services, see how Paychex can help. Visit the resource hub at paychex.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. Paychex can help manage those complexities while you focus on all the ways you want your business to thrive. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, take care. This podcast is property of Paychex Incorporated 2022, all rights reserved.